Hi, this is the Family Business Podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping family businesses thrive. I'm your host, Russ Hayworth, and I work with family businesses to help them to navigate the highs and lows that can come with working with your family. Each week, I will share insights and experiences from my own work and from other advisors from around the world. You will also hear directly from family businesses who have been kind enough to share their own stories. If you want to find out more about the show, just head over to fanbizpodcast.com and you can get in touch with me there and find all our previous episodes. If you're enjoying the show, I'd be very grateful if you'd leave me a review in iTunes. It helps others to find the show and it gives me a warm, fuzzy feeling in my belly. Just head over to fanbizpodcast.com forward slash iTunes and follow the link. Anyway, it's time for this week's show. Enjoy. Well, hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Family Business Podcast. We are joined today by somebody who has been on the podcast before and is actually responsible for, to date, the most popular um, podcast episode that we have produced. Um, Therefore, there is a huge amount of pressure on both of us to make this one even better. Um, But firstly, I'll say hello again to Steve Legler. Hi, Steve. How are you? Hey, Russ, good to be back with you, and uh, I'm still shaking my head about your informing me that my episode was the most popular, but let's let's try and beat that one with this one. Absolutely. And the, the purpose of this um, episode, if people remember the episode that we recorded before, it's episode number 13 for those that haven't listened. I highly recommend going back uh, and having a listen to it if you haven't done. Um, it is our most popular one for a reason. It is, it's an absolute um, gem, even if I do say so uh, myself, uh, mainly because of you, Steve, rather than me. Um, but in that episode, you mentioned that you looked for a book that explained um, Bowen Family Systems theory, and you couldn't find it, so you decided to write it. And I made you promise that you'd come back on the show once that book has been written, um, you set a deadline in that book, uh, sorry, in that episode of 2019. And here we are, it is now the middle of 2019, and you have written the book. I have. I, I, I work well with deadlines. <laughs> I work well with deadlines. If I don't have a deadline, I, I often won't get stuff done. So, but I, I'm sure I'm not the only one who, who suffers from that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So just as a summary, for those who may not have listened to the um, previous uh, episode that you were on, can you give our audience uh, an introduction to yourself and an overview of what it is that you do? Sure. Um, My name is Steve Legler and I live in Montreal, Canada, where I was born almost 55 years ago. I was born into an entrepreneurial family meaning that my father was an entrepreneur and I was the third of his three children, but I was the only boy. And so this was the uh, mid-1960s and being a boy was, uh, was special for someone who was running a business because now he felt he finally had someone that he could train to take over his business. And so from my earliest memories, uh, the expectation on me was that I would be taking over my dad's business eventually. And so the first 25 years of my life plus was all focused on that, working there, uh, working for the business in the summer, uh, working, 
right after getting my bachelor's degree, going to get my MBA and coming back to eventually take over. And then uh, there was kind of a fork in the road and uh, my dad ended up selling the business just as I came back with my MBA to take over. So we went from a, a business with 300 employees to one with four employees and, and uh, two of us were named Steve Legler and I was uh -huh. like their junior and uh, my dad went off to run his farm that he had bought to have some fun and I was left managing the assets that were left which was uh, some money from the sale of the, of the operations, the real estate that we had kept and a small uh, portfolio of intellectual property, a few patents and trademarks that, that I was running. And so all of a sudden I, I ended up running a family office, a small family office at the time, but it was 1991 and, and nobody knew what a family office was. And in fact, uh, most people still don't know what a family office is, but here I was uh, doing that. And I, I ended up doing that for longer than I care to admit because I was actually very underutilized, um, but there was too much to walk away from, and I felt the responsibility to continue to manage what was there. And then in uh, 2013, I stumbled into a program in Toronto, which is about a five-hour drive down the road from where I am here in, in Montreal. It was called Family Enterprise Advisor. This came out of the University of British Columbia, which is in Vancouver at the other end of the country. It had been around for a couple of years, and this was a program designed to help people who work with family businesses and business families to understand family businesses better, to better serve that clientele of theirs. And so this program was geared mostly to people who worked for banks, people who worked in asset management, um, accountants, people who sold life insurance. And so here I was in Toronto in this in this group of about 20 people in my cohort who mostly fit those profiles. And mm -hmm. I was this guy who had worked in his own family businesses and was running his own fam family's family office. And I realized quickly, I had nothing in common with most of the people that were in the room, except there were people at the front of the room who were teaching us all this stuff. And it opened up a whole new world for me. I, I did not realize, so here, here are these people who are teaching us all about family business and these people are you know, facilitators, they're coaches, they're people who work with business families on figuring out their values, on uh, planning a family retreat, on educating the rising generation, all these cool kind of things that I never realized, oh my God, that's, that's a thing? And so here I was, uh, you know, in my late 40s, and I finally, you know, figured out what I wanted to be when I grew up. Uh -huh. I realized that, that I had spent most of my life trying to do what I thought I was supposed to do based on what other people told me I was supposed to do. And I finally had a calling. So I've been doing this kind of work now with families ever since. And I finally feel fulfilled with the work that I'm doing. Fantastic. Um, and um, I, I also came to um, the kind of uh, advising family businesses outside of the scope of um, financial planning um, uh, only over, over the last few years. So um, I, I can understand the enthusiasm with which you, you come to the calling because um, it is something that, that I think um, people that are passionate about it really get rewarded for. Absolutely. The book that you have written that you referred to in our previous episode is called in, in the, 
Let me say that again. Interdependent wealth and how family systems theory illuminates successful intergenerational wealth transitions. Um, I said to you off air, what I would really love to do on this um, episode is just have you read the book cover to cover um, because it is it's fantastic. Um, I'm not sure we can do that. Um, but just give us a, a summary, if you can, of the book before we get into the detail of it, um, why you decided to write it. I know we touched on it in the previous episode, but I think, again, it'd be good for people who perhaps haven't heard that one to just understand why you decided to write this book. Yeah, I think that uh, I'm big on setting the right context, and, and I do it at the beginning of the book, but I'll do it for you and the audience here. So... And it's a great segue from where we just dropped off. I, I completed this family enterprise advisor program. And we had learned in the first module of that on family dynamics, they had talked about the fact that the family is a system. And I was kind of curious about that. And I, I thought I understood it. And I understood it well enough to pass the designation to get the FEA letters after my name. But I kind of still felt like I was missing something about the, the systems aspect. At, the, at about the same time, so in 2013, 2014, I started to notice, I think it was on LinkedIn actually, people talking about Bowen family systems theory. And I didn't know much about it. And I kind of started to check out what it was. And the more I, I learned, the more I realized that people were saying, oh yeah, this Bowen family systems theory, if you're working with family businesses on intergenerational stuff, it's really good to know about this Bowen stuff. And I thought, oh cool. Hey, yeah, there seems to be consensus that this, this is really good to know. So, you know, I, I started Googling things and I was looking for a book. I figured if, if everyone's saying that knowing Bowen is good for people who work with family businesses, Somebody must have written a book about that that'll explain it. I can, you know, spend a couple of days reading a book and, and I'll be enlightened. And so I looked for that book and I couldn't find it. Now, that's not to say there aren't any books about Bowen theory out there. There are, um, I want to say, dozens of them if you, you know, stretch it. Um, but none of them really addressed the, the angle that, that I was coming from. And so uh, th that search for a resource to, to help me learn this, uh, while it didn't uncover a book, it did uncover um, some training programs in Bowen theory. And so I chose that avenue because I couldn't find a book. Presumably, if there was a book, I might have read the book and then found the, the training program after. And, and maybe some people will read my book now and, and do that. And that's actually part of my hope. I really think the world would be better served if more people understood Bowen theory. And that's why I'm trying to share enough of it to get people interested in it. So I stumbled into a course um, in Burlington, Vermont, which is an hour and a half from my house here. And it was like one day a month from September to April. And I started to get into this course and I did that for a couple of years of training. And I started to learn more and more about Bowen and, and realize how powerful it was and how it's not just something you learn uh, about in your head. You really actually are expected to kind of do some of the work yourself. And when I say do the work, it's reconnect with members of your own family. Mm -hmm. uh, every, every person who's alive, who's related to you, you you're encouraged to develop 
a, a mature one-on-one adult relationship with as many people as you can, because that helps you uh, to increase your differentiation of self, which we'll talk about it in a bit. Um, and after two years of that, I said, you know what, I really got to write this book. There, uh, there's enough here that I, I really think it's important that someone write this book that I've been thinking of but I really needed to kick it up a notch. And so I actually went to Washington, D.C. at the Bowen Center, which is where Murray Bowen had founded the Bowen Center back in the, oh, was it the 60s or the 70s by the time he founded the Bowen Center? And I went and I did the training program that they have there. And I did that for two years. And not that I'm an expert now, but with the four years that I have of training, I have enough knowledge to share with people confidently without actually being an expert because there are people that have been doing this for decades but i'm also i also remember what it was like to not know this stuff and and i think i'm pretty good at explaining things in basic enough terms so people so i can get people interested and give them a a a basic level of knowledge Mm -hmm. and so that's what i did i i I wrote this book uh, I started it last summer, finished it in late November, and it's almost ready to be hatched. Fantastic. And uh, I've been fortunate enough to have a advanced copy to read through it, and it is um, it's exceptional. It's brilliantly written. Um, it, it is written as if you are speaking it uh, in, in the best possible way. I think that's exactly how... Um, it should be um, written. And it, as I say, my ideal would be just to record an audiobook version and put, put that out as, as my own show. Um, I just want to say about your thing about the, it's, it's, it sounds like I'm speaking it. Um, when I wrote my first book five years ago, Shift Your Family Business, my, my wife read the book and she would tell everyone, oh, when I read this book, it's like I hear Steve's voice saying it. Yeah. So now... A couple of weeks ago, she was reading this book and she said, you know what? I still hear your voice, but it's, it's not as much as the last time. So she, she thinks I've, I've done a more professional job writing this book because she doesn't hear my voice as much. I don't know. <laughs> well, I, I, as I say, I think it's exceptional. And we're, we're going to um, delve into some of the detail um, now. Um, this might sound a strange question, but you, you will understand it and be able to um, explain it to our audience. But l- let's talk about fish. Okay, that's not mine, the fish, the idea of fish, but you're talking about different kinds of capital. Yeah. And so when people in the world of family business and family wealth talk about wealth, um, they almost always default to uh, the financial wealth only. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the, the accountants and the lawyers and, and the wealth managers their, their number one concern when dealing with a family's wealth is the dollars. Everything mm-hmm. that's after that dollar sign up to the zeros and how big that number is and, and how do we maintain that number as big as possible and how do we make sure that after the wealth goes from one generation to the next that we maximize that number by minimizing the amount of tax that will be due upon people's death. And so they, they spend all kinds of effort and time trying to conceive ways um, to, to and their, their focus is all on the financial. But, but actually, our wealth is, is much more than financial. So the F in FISH stands for, for, for financial. Um, there's been a lot written on this in much more detail 
than what I have written about it. So I, I would actually refer you, anyone who's interested in this, to look at the work of James E. Hughes, J. Uh-huh. Hughes. Uh, he has written a lot on this. He is, he is like the guru in this space, especially in North America. Um, there's also a book by uh, Richard Orlando called Legacy. He talks a lot about these capitals, and he spends a lot of time detailing all of the different ones. But, but FISH is an acronym, and so the H is for human capital. The S is for social capital. Some people add another S and call it spiritual capital. Um, there's intellectual capital for the I. And there's all the different definitions of what that means, but really... My focus is on everything but the F, and it's actually all the people in the family and the relationships in the family. And these are the areas of family wealth that I think more people should be spending more time focusing on and, and in fact, prioritizing, thinking about the relationships that the family has, the, 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 the human capital, actually seeing each person in the rising generation doing something where they are fulfilled as opposed to somebody who is waiting for somebody to die to get an inheritance. And I don't know if you've seen families where there's people like that, but I have, and I always find it really, really sad. Yeah, and it's, absolutely. It's an opportunity more than anything else. So, so I've written a little bit about the, the, the different kinds of capital and anything that gets you talking about what value you have in your family that is besides something with a dollar sign in front of it, that's, that's what we're talking about. And that's where I'm hoping that people are starting to be encouraged to look more at the humans, the intellectual, the the social capital of the family. Like you have a family that is runs the big business in, in a town. There's there's not just the wealth there. There's the relationships. There's a responsibility of the philanthropy. There's being there's raising the kids in a way to to be responsible citizens of the city based on their privileged place in society. And and I and I don't know that all families who have that opportunity are exploiting it properly. And I, and I would hope that the ones who are inclined to do so would also be encouraged by their advisors to do that as well. Because uh-huh. I think the responsibility that we have as people who work with families to help show them the way and tell them what other families are doing and guide them because they're, they're very rarely experts in all that stuff. And so they rely on experts. And if all the experts are doing is concentrating on how they can save taxes, they're missing out on a lot of other opportunities. And um, maybe the wrong phrase, but in their defense, that they're economically motivated by the tax savings or the legal structure or the the financial mechanism, aren't they? We're we're in a... That's their expertise. Exactly. And we're in a fortunate position where actually we can, we're not economically motivated to save tax, for example. I mean, that, that may end up as a, a byproduct of what we do, but that's the fortunate position we're in in the work that we do. And that we don't necessarily have to, the, the boundaries that might be there for an accountant or a lawyer aren't there so much for us. Absolutely. And, 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 and I like that word boundary because it, 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 it's, when you deal with it, 
I'm not ever going to suggest that people should not bring in a qualified lawyer and accountant to help them with, you know, structuring their, their plan. My problem that I have is where people go to those people first and rely mm -hmm. almost exclusively on them, yeah. create a very thorough plan with all the expertise of those people, and then just assume that whatever they've drawn up is going to fit perfectly with the family members. Because I really mm -hmm. think that's a... Uh, I'll say bass backwards way of doing it. I, I really try to encourage families to figure out what they want to do and figure it out as a family of how they want to see the family move from this generation to the next. And once they've come to some general ideas on how they want that to work, then they can and should go see lawyers and accountants and trust people to draw it up to fit what they want. Because right now, most people are going and getting something and then it doesn't fit. And then they like, well, it, it fits close enough and we'll worry about that later. But then later, it, it's just worse than it is if you would have done it right now. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think it, it, it draws synergies with the one of the important things we talk about with family businesses is making sure the business has a purpose. And this is almost al aligning that with the, the family um, wealth. As, as we say it's not the financial wealth necessarily, but, but everything to do with the family wealth aligned behind a purpose. And having the, the conversations around that is really what's important rather than saying, well, let's just save as many tax and dollars or pounds as we can, because that doesn't necessarily give the, the wealth the right purpose. Well, you've used a couple of, of words that I really like to use of, of purpose, obviously, and the word alignment. I mean, I, I like to talk about family alignment and people, they kind of like shake their heads. What are you talking about? And then I, I try to explain it. It's like having everyone have a common view of, of where the family is trying to go. So you might want to call that a vision. You might want to call, you know, go a little bit further and kind of create a family mission statement. You might want to, you know, all, before you can do that, sometimes you've got to do some work on the family values. But the interesting thing is just working with a family on clarifying their values is such an enriching experience for all the family members. They will all have various different lists of their top values, but then there's kind of magic in finding like the two or three or four that they all kind of have in common and can agree on. And then once they've done that, figuring out the vision and what they want to do together becomes so much easier because it's based on, on their values. And, and as they do that work together, and I've, I've sat there with families as they do this work, and it's really, it's really cool to see them as they realize certain things they have in common. And then they start, you know, talking about examples of where they saw this value being exhibited by dad or by grandpa. And, and it sort of, it brings them together because it's, it's, it's not just, you don't just come out of there with the list of values. You come out of there with the shared experience of, of creating those values. And that's work that, that some families have done and the families who do that, guess what? They have, you know, historically had done a better job of transitioning their wealth to the next generation than the ones who just went to see their lawyer and their accountant and wrote a will. And then after the funeral, you know, things were dispersed. And then guess what happened? The family didn't stay together and things fell apart and they had arguments because, you know, somebody got this in the will and they didn't know. And there's, there's just so many 
benefits to doing the work with the family, but I also know that it takes time, it takes effort, and you really have to decide to do it, and then you have to get the family aligned first around doing the work to stay mm-hmm. together. Yeah, and it's almost, um, I don't know about your experience uh, over there, but it's almost a taboo subject. It's like, oh, we don't talk about that yet. We'll talk about that another time. And the danger with that is if plans are made where wills are written or plans are put together without everybody's knowledge, the first time they experience what their plan is is in the lawyer's office when the will's being read. And then, you know, that you're already opening it up to potential conflict and disappointment at that stage because everything's coming as a surprise whereas if it's brought together around a table where people are having those discussions and the shared experiences and you know you're saying there about reminiscing about the the culture and the, the values that have gone before them it becomes a much more inclusive thing it becomes something that is is part of the the everyday for that rather than it being restricted to the lawyer's office i think that most people think that they have more time left than they than they do. Yeah. They don't like to deal like one of the biggest obstacles to even making any plans is people's you know, they don't want to admit that that they're mortal. Mm. Nobody wants to talk about death. And then and then people, you know, the, the conversations we're talking about that that fa- that we're encouraging families to have are around a a couple of, well, a few different, you know, tricky subjects. We're talking about death. We're talking about money, which a lot of people don't like to talk about money. And then when you throw love in there, because it's the, you know, and not that people don't love each other, but, but talking about love sometimes is not that easy. And so we're talking about death, money, and love. And we're saying, okay, you should be talking about all this. And, and so I understand why people are reluctant to do that. And it's much easier to just go to a lawyer and talk about some abstract things of, of, of writing a document. Yeah. Um, but if you have, and even if you don't have a lot of wealth, I mean, there, there, there's even, even families at the lower end of the scale, if they want what they've worked all their lives for to be transitioned to the next generation so that their kids and their grandchildren, you know, can, can benefit from, from that legacy of even if it's just the values that they learn, that's that's some pretty important stuff. And I know there's been surveys done, and 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 people talk about how it's important. Even even the rising generation, the surveys have been done that really they want to learn their family's values, and mm-hmm. and that's in many ways even more important than whatever monetary inheritance they're, they're going to get. And it, is that what we mean by in, interdependent wealth? That's we're so, not talking dollars, we're talking the, the whole system. So, so, yeah. So interdependent was the word I chose for the title of the book um, because we're talking about family systems. So let's get back to this idea that the family is a system. A system is a collection of people or objects or whatever that are related to each other and therefore they are interdependent because they depend each one depends on the other so so the solar system 
all the planets move around and, and it's, they've studied it so far, you know, for so long now that it's all, all of how the system works is very predictable and mm-hmm. scientific as, as one moon goes around the earth and other things are moving. Uh, families are also a system, but it's, it's a lot less scientific. And that's what Murray Bowen was trying to create a science of human behavior based on um, his, his big thing to the world of psychology was, or psychiatry and psychology, was focusing on the family system rather than the individual. So he started his work in the 50s and, and was working with schizophrenic patients. And at the time, the belief was, and, and largely still is from most perspectives, that the problem the schizophrenic has is between their two ears. Mm-hmm. And Murray Bowen's view was, you know what, I think that whatever end up between those two ears happened because of the relationships in that family. And so he started studying families and the interrelationships of those families. He actually had families move into this ward and he had grad students following them around and studying them and, and trying to turn this into a science. And he got to the point I'll just share this anecdotally here, where, where when a family would come to him, the parents would come and say they have a, a, a schizophrenia, they have a problem teenager. And he got to the point where sometimes he didn't even want to see the teenager. He would just work with the two parents on mm-hmm. their relationship. And as he helped them clarify things in their relationship, the, the child who he never even met would, would suffer less symptoms of their schizophrenia. And so that's where he knew he was on to something about it's the relationships in the family, it's the family system. And that's what was so cool to me about, you know, discovering, okay, I want to work with families, but how do you work with a family and, and see all the things that you really need to see? Uh-huh. And it's the relationships between the people that where all of the, there's a lot of nuggets hidden in those relationship and, uh, relationships. And that's where, where studying Bowen theory gives you some clues and some things to look for and some, some ways of understanding what's going on that, that put you like a step or two ahead of where you would otherwise be if you didn't recognize those aspects of the theory. Mm-hmm. And as I say, we we covered a lot of the aspects of um, the the systems theory in our previous episode. Um, but would it be beneficial just to give people a, a quick overview of, say, the the eight concepts? I know giving a quick overview might be tricky, but um, just to give some context around the the eight concepts of Boeing for for those that haven't listened to the previous okay, so, episode. So, as I mentioned to you just before. I have a kind of a interesting view on these eight concepts, and, and I, it's it's evolved actually to the point where I, I put it in the in, in this book because I figured it would be like writing a chemistry book without putting in a periodic table if uh-huh. I didn't list the eight concepts. So I've I've listed the concepts, but the con- but knowing the concepts is 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 can be useful for someone who really understands a lot about theory to try to categorize where this part of the theory fits. But if you don't know anything about Bowen theory, listing the concepts, triangles, differentiation of self, nuclear family, emotional system, 
family projection process, multi-generational transmission, emotional cutoff, sibling position, and societal emotional process. Um, that probably doesn't give you much unless <laughs> I would spend time on each of them. And quite frankly, some of them are, there's a lot of overlap in them. And I'm yeah. not confident that I could give without reading a, a really good explanation of each and every one. And some of them are a lot easier. And even one of them that's kind of cool is is sibling position, um, because that one actually did not originate with Murray Bowen. He, at the time he was working on his theory, he had six concepts, and then he came across the work of a German um, psychiatrist or psychologist. I don't really know uh, Walter Toman, who had written a book about called Family Constellation. And it was all his theory was about sibling position and how important it was in determining a lot of characteristics of people. And I'm sure we all know families where the oldest exhibits certain traits and the youngest is the baby and exhibits other traits and the middle child. And so Tolman did this, did this real big, huge expose on different, the oldest brother of sisters, the youngest sister of brothers that, you know, all, he did 10 different profiles. Wow. And, and Murray Bowen saw, this was like in 1961, I think. And Murray Bowen saw this book and said, oh my God, this, this adds so much to my theories. I'm just going to include it as another concept. Uh -huh. And so if you're, if you have clients or if you're in a, you know, the, the different, if you go get that book by Walter Toman, T-O-M-A-N, um, there's so much in there that that it's obviously it's not what do they say determinative. You can't say that everyone will be because they're the oldest, but there's yeah. there's plenty of of things that you can you know if you if you learn these that concept and then you meet a family, you can already start to put people in different seats and, and make assumptions that obviously you want to verify, but certain traits in just based on where people fit in their, in their family, it's fascinating stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I know we keep giving a, a little prompt out to our previous episode, but we do cover a lot more on, on Bowen's um, theory in that episode. So um, if people's interests have been piqued by um, hearing you today, then I think it would be very beneficial for them to go and check out that. It's episode 13 um, on the show. But but back to the, um, the, the conversation for today in terms of the uh, transition of, uh, of wealth. Um, you mentioned in the book the, the concept of um, transition anxiety or wealth transition anxiety, which I, I thought was really interesting. C can you give us a little bit more of a, an overview of what you mean by that? Yeah, I, I want to back up a little bit first just to, just okay. to re-establish the context of the book. Uh, and, and what I was trying to do in writing these books. So uh -huh. I've been working in the world of family business and family wealth, especially as it relates to transitioning it from one generation to the next. And I had been studying and training in Bowen Family Systems Theory. And what I wanted to do, I figured the, the, the best way for me to make a useful contribution to this field was to introduce a number of ways where these fields overlap. Mm -hmm. I really like the word overlap because there are certain aspects of 
from my experience of working with, with family wealth transitions and from my work in Bowen, where I saw, oh, wait a sec, you know, there's something in this area and there's something in this area, and let me combine them. And so essentially the, the, bot, the main body of the book is 15 chapters based on 15 different overlaps that I found of uh-huh. those two fields. And so they're, they're almost random examples, but they're just examples that I accumulated over the years that I wanted to you know, treat one by one. So there's 15 different examples of ways where Bowen theory illuminates, as I call it in, in the subtitle, uh, successful wealth transitions. Um, the transmission anxiety kind of goes back to what we were just talking about a few minutes ago. It's the, the fact that somebody has to admit that the generation that's currently in charge of things, if we fast forward a number of decades, they most likely won't be there. And the people who are in the generation after them will very likely be sitting in those chairs where those people are. Uh-huh. And nobody likes to think about that fact because it makes them think about the fact that they're no longer going to be there. And actually, this brings up one of my, you know, I'm a big stickler or fan or I don't know what the right word is about vocabulary and using the Uh right word to describe things and how words change over time. And, And there was a time and there still are a lot of people who talk about succession planning. And I'm glad to to notice that that word is slowly being used less and being replaced by the word continuity planning. Yeah. Because the connotations of succession planning makes you think of the time when you're not going to be there anymore. And Mm -hmm. continuity planning makes you think more of what are the things we want to stay the same. Yeah. And so just, just reframing that can already start to make the, anxiety go down hopefully Uh yeah um the the analogy that um came to mind when i was reading through the uh, about the you know looking forward to to future generations and how that transition is is managed is you've got the different generations stood on a stage and the spotlight is currently on the senior generation because they're the ones running the business and slowly it, it pans across to the next generation and either the senior generation can bow gracefully and they've had their time or they can try and cling on to that spotlight and try and barge people off the stage and, and keep it all about them and the disruption that that obviously causes. And it, it, it painted an amusing picture in my mind from, from that perspective. But the reality of it is that that can cause an awful lot of um, trauma and, and challenge within a family business if that attitude is taken. And that's why I think the conversations that you're talking about having and the, the preparation that needs to be put into this for the continuity planning is the show must go on. It, does, it doesn't mean that you have to be the star of that show. Would, would that be a fair analogy? I, I, I like that. I like that analogy. Um, you're making me think also of, of one of the ways I try to illustrate uh, in the book about the interdependence and it, it's, it's really getting people to realize their own mortality. Mm. And, and, and I, I only mentioned it briefly and I, I wasn't sure if I should include it or not, but I mentioned, you know, when, when you're holding a, a brand new baby that, that you're now a parent and then you're changing its diaper 
And, and then if you can fast forward in your head to the point where <laughs> maybe that person will be changing your diaper. Yes. Or hopefully paying someone to change the diaper so they don't yeah. have to do it. Um, if you can get to that place in your life, that's what I mean by interdependence. I mean, you, yeah. you are here and you, you start off as a child and you're in a lower position. Eventually you move up to where you're the, what I like to call the now generation. Mm-hmm. You move up from the next to the now. And then eventually there's hopefully another generation behind you that, that hopefully you're not looking at them as pushing you out, but, but you know, their, their time at the top of the, of the Ferris wheel is coming and, and you, you are back on the way down. And if you uh-huh. can recognize that, I, I like to say that people, uh, they, they look at time frames that are, that are way too short. And if they would just expand the time frame and, and look at, 30 years after they're dead, mm-hmm. whatever that is. So, so overestimate, let's say you're going to live to 95 and then, and then that another, and then say, well, where are things going to be? Okay. I won't be here. Uh, I, I don't expect to live to be 135. Mm-hmm. So who, how old are, how old are my kids going to be? How old might their kids be? And, and how do I want things to, to look for them? And, recognize that you're not going to live forever. I, I don't know. So far, I don't think anyone has. So I don't know why some people think they're going to be the first exception. They're keeping it a secret if they if they have managed it. Let's put it that way. Um, sure. the, 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 the other um, overlap area in, in terms of, of assisting with um, wealth transition and understanding kind of where the family has has come from the origins again we touched on it previously but the the importance of family diagrams uh, or genograms however you term them um do you think that's an essential part of of understanding the the overall family um kind of value set the 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 entire wealth of that family is is aided by that I'll answer that in two ways. So, so specifically drawing a genogram going back generations and, and mapping out every aunt and uncle and cousin and, and when they were born and when they died and whether they had cancer or whether they were an alcoholic or whether, I mean, that, that's work that a lot of, if, if you're training or studying Bowen family systems theory, everyone is not only encouraged, but really like forced to go and and do that. You need to be able to draw your own family tree back a few generations Mm -hmm. at the Bowen center and and, and in any training program you're going to do, you're going to need to learn to do that. And it's actually, after you've done it a few times, it's it's pretty easy. You're drawing squares for men and circles for women. And there's ways to draw lines together for when people are married. And then you drop down lines and draw their kids and you always draw them in chronological order from left to right, the first child born out to the next one. There's, there's, there are conventions on how to do that. And it can be a very, very worthwhile exercise in learning about your family history because there are often, and that's one of Bowen's main you know, concepts, is that, that things repeat from one generation to the next. Uh-huh. So if you're wondering why your brother is like this or your sister or you are like this, uh, you can often find some really interesting clues 
in looking back to generations. So that's kind of my Bowen answer to that. For people who are interested in that, it can be a really, really worthwhile and eye-opening experience. When I look at it, the question of understanding the history of the family for the wealth transition, those details can be interesting additions, but really what I think is most important for families to understand, especially a wealthy family, is where did the wealth come from? Was it, you know, grandpa came over and started something and, and, and worked his butt off and built up this company? And because and, sometimes you, you run into people who are wealthy and they, they really don't know anything. They just kind of grew up and, and they lived in this big house and mom and dad never really explained. You knew that, you know, grandpa had some business, but you know nothing about it. Eventually, those families, you know, the, the wealth is, I think, more likely to, to dissipate in, in families like that, where there's no connection to where it came from. And there's, there's been a lot of work done by, well, Dennis Jaffe has been a guest on your podcast, and Dennis mm-hmm. Jaffe has done a lot of work on what he calls the 100-year families, and he studied a bunch of families that have kept their family wealth in a family for at least three or four generations for at least 100 years. And what they've discovered is that telling the story and making sure that the current generation knows about the history of where the wealth came from and how it was built and, and, and not just the successes but the failures along the way as well. These are all important things so that the family actually feels connected to the wealth, to connected to the family. And uh-huh. it's the connection to the wealth and the family that increases the likelihood that the wealth will remain connected to the family for the next generation and the next one after that. And so knowing the history, um, that's something that I always try to encourage families I work with to, you know, fill in some of those stories. You know, you don't have to go and have some, you know, one day where you're going to go and tell the whole history of the family. But if you can occasionally, every time the family gets together, tell another story or another anecdote or, or prepare a booklet of the, even the timeline of what, uh, just to inform people, because if that doesn't get done and, and then the people who are there, after they're gone and then nobody will have the institutional memory to even know where it comes from. So it's important to, to document and share this kind of stuff. Mm. And uh, I, I always try to encourage families to do it. It's an extra thing they have to do, but the, it's another one of those things where the benefits of having done it far outweigh whatever efforts that they're going to have to do. Yeah, I agree. And it it ties in um, again with, with something else that you speak about in the book about preparing the heirs rather than preparing the wealth necessarily. It, again, it's almost backwards planning um, from um, some professional services that they will prepare the wealth in a way that, or let's say some tax on death, let's do this on tax. But actually there's very little preparation done for the people who will, will become the mantle for that you're you're bringing up one of my favorite expressions in this industry and i i wish i knew who actually gets credit for using it first and i I don't know It, it it might be it might be in dispute but but uh to paraphrase it it's we spend way too much time preparing the assets for the heirs 
and we should be spending more time preparing the heirs to receive the assets. Yeah. So the people will work on creating a trust structure or a holding company or whatever to, to hold all these assets. And so they're working all on the assets and there's an heir's name somewhere there on the document. And that heir may not find out about the fact that they're an heir until they actually get the money. Yeah. And so they are very unprepared. And mm-hmm. so an unprepared heir is very likely, you know, doesn't have much, a much better chance of, of maintaining that wealth than the average lottery winner. Yeah. Because if you go and win, you know, $20 million, uh, I don't know what the studies show, but uh, a few years later, most people who have done that don't have much left. Yeah. And so an unprepared heir, if, if people think that, you know, I'm going to, I have a hundred million dollars. I got five kids. When I die, they're each going to have 20 million bucks. They'll be set. Oh, everything will be fine. Um, if they just get that $20 million check after your funeral and you haven't done anything at all to prepare them to understand what having wealth is, to be financially literate, to be responsible, to understand where it came from, chances are, um, yeah, the local Ferrari dealer will probably be happy because he's going to sell some cars. Uh-huh. But but the chances of that wealth being there for then your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren, um, not so much. Mm. Uh, funnily enough, I used to work with um, lottery winners here in the UK, and, and um, that, that was something that, you know, that was part of our role was to try and prepare people after the event, obviously, because they didn't know they were going to win it. So you can't really do that much beforehand to, to prepare yourself. Everyone's got an idea of what they'll do when, uh, when they win the lottery, but actually the reality of it, when, when they're seeing the scale of, of what's in front of them can be very different to what they might think their expectation is and, and what they believe their reaction to it would be. And I think the same happens when there's a significant wealth inheritance without that preparation is how people think they will act is, is probably different to how they do act uh, in, in those circumstances. You know what you're making me realize is that, that the parallel of the lottery winner and the heir, um, the other thing is those people always end up with a whole bunch of new friends they never knew they had. Yeah. <laughs> and all of them, many of them will have very convincing stories about why that lucky person, you should deal with me because I will do this and I can help mm-hmm. you do that. And all of a sudden, they are faced with evaluating dozens, possibly, of different ways to go mm-hmm. with absolutely no preparation or no idea which path to follow, which person to trust. Yep. And for some reason, the ones who who are the least likely to be the ones you should trust somehow sound the most trustworthy. Mm. I don't know what they do to do that, but some people are really good at, at, at spinning a great story and then convincing people that they are well-meaning and have their best interests at heart. And a lot of people make a lot of mistakes. And if they were just prepared for it, um, they, they would have a much, much better chance. And part yeah. of the preparation is being introduced in advance to the right 
people. And that's another area. So I'm sure that a lot of your audience are people who are advisors to family businesses. Uh, If you don't know the children of your major clients, you're missing an opportunity. Because yeah, yeah. if you're if you're just taking your instructions from dad who's 70, 75 and, and he's got kids and you've you've written up all these agreements and you meet with him and you meet with his wife and you talk about the kids and you just happen to know their names because you have them jotted down, but you haven't actually met them and developed a relationship with them. Mm-hmm. Chances are, and there's been studies on this too, about you know, after the funeral and that money ends up in the hands of that next generation they're going to go to their own people Uh and and they might be better people. They might be worse people, but chances of them staying with you, if you don't know them, there's going to be other people coming to them uh, that, and and, and then that client for you and your firm, whatever firm you're with is is likely lost and gone across the street. Yeah. And I think that going back to the analogy of, of lottery winners uh, and people who inherit significant wealth with with a lack of preparation that the the problem that that can create is you're you're surrounded by people who tell you this is what other lottery winners do so in the in the case of somebody who's who's won a 20 million pounds you can't go to your your high street or or your local person because they're not used to dealing with somebody in in that position therefore you obviously every rich person goes and does it through somebody different and they they have special rules and special things that happen and actually it it's it's not like that at all and the the preparation stage of that can can provide so much education and reassurance to the the next gen and rising generation that actually there's no magic world <laughs> beyond, you know, that that you only get access to um, these special rules. I, I often um, utilize, a, and this is perhaps a poor analogy, but I wonder if um, you know the the um, famous people or or, or um, big celebrity people suffer from hangovers, or whether there's a secret alcohol that they drink that means that they don't get any hangovers and they don't feel bad afterwards. And I think that's the the misconception when it comes to wealth is that there's a different set of rules, whereas actually it's it's not. It's the preparation that's the key to that. Oh, absolutely. The 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 the, the, the preparation of the heirs, and it fits it fits with the whole interdependent thing. I mean, you. The, 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 your children are kind of depending on certain things from you and they're not always in a great position to ask and, mm-hmm. and, and sometimes just getting the conversation going and, and having the children feel comfortable to ask for things because then they feel like maybe they're, they seem like they might be greedy or it's not their place. Well, it really is dad's wealth, so he can really do what he wants. But if you know that your parents haven't you know, taken care of things or if they've kept things secret from you, um, at, at a certain point, you know, if you're 30 and your parents are in their 60s, that's one thing. When you're 40 and they're in their 70s, it's another thing. When if you're in your 50s and they're, in the, you know, eventually, but the longer you wait to talk about these things, sometimes the harder it is. So um, getting those those uh, conversations started. So I just want to go back to the book. It, it, each of the 15 chapters, I, com- I, I end each chapter with some considerations for three different groups. I, I talk about considerations for families, uh-huh. 
Uh, I finish with considerations for advisors who work with families. And in between, I actually talk about considerations for individuals in the family. And, and there I talk about something that one of your recent guests, Joshua Nacht, who talked about family champions. Uh-huh. I use the word family champions a few times in the book, not as much as him. I really got into his book as just as I was finishing writing this, but I, I knew about his family champions concept. But at the end of each chapter, there are a paragraph or two or three uh, based on what was in that chapter about how a person who is a member of a family who recognizes that the family could and should be doing a little bit more on the family side of what they might consider some ideas they might think of to help them to overcome some of the inertia that always exists for those people mm-hmm. who who know that they want to do something, but they don't know where to start. So there's ideas at the end of each chapter for those people as well that hopefully can you know get people moving in the right direction a bit. Absolutely. And what I like is the the phrase you use at, at the end of each one is for motivated family members. And I think that's a key message to get across is this is not something that just happens. It needs to be something that you're motivated to do. And and like you say, the use of a, a family champion or, or a family leader within that environment is one way of making sure that if it is something that's of priority, that there is somebody driving that forward, because otherwise it is something that there's a great danger of it being left to next week, next month, next year, next decade. Oh, and then that, back that's to the can that, gets, that can gets kicked down the road at any, oh, well, we were supposed to have this meeting about this, but now something else came up. So we'll just move it. And then they, they maybe they set another date, maybe they forget. And then six months later, they realize, hey, we never had that meeting. Oh, well, you were supposed to send me an email and you were supposed to do this. And, oh, I was going to send a doodle or nobody answered the doodle. You really need to have someone who's motivated and actually, that's I, when I when I start to work with a family, I explain that part of my role when I work with them is that I'm part of my role is to keep them on schedule and not let things fall through the cracks mm-hmm. because it's just too easy for you know them to point the fingers at well the, that brother was supposed to do it or your sister was supposed to do this and that and things and then all of a sudden they're six months down the road and what they thought they were going to do that got rescheduled didn't get rescheduled I. Part of what I offer, and I, I tell this to other colleagues that I that I know, part of our job is to keep people on track. And it's yeah. not always easy, but that's part of what they're paying us for. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I'm a financial planner um, uh, as well as a family business advisor. And one of the things that we uh, talk about from an investment perspective is something called asset drift, where you have uh, an asset allocation that you're comfortable with, that you're agreed on, that's fit for purpose. If you don't review that and, and refine that over time, it drifts. And I think the same happens intergenerationally with families, if there's a value set that's been agreed upon, actually keeping people accountable to that and uh, uh, conversations around that area are important because otherwise you get that drift in the same sense. And I think the the interdependent wealth is another area where if it's not something that is reviewed and kept at the top of an agenda, there can be that drift where all of a sudden five years have passed and it looks nothing like what it started as not through anything deliberate, just through the fact that five years has passed and the world's moved on. You're you're bringing up a subject that I've been talking about more and more about um, 
people talk about family meetings mm. and importance of having family meetings. And, and I, I, I want to take it a step further. And it's not one family meeting. It's a series of family meetings. And, and if it's a family meeting once a year, that's once a year. If it's every quarter, if it's twice a year, whatever. But before you leave that meeting, you have a date set for the next meeting mm-hmm. to make sure that that meeting happens. Because it's not the fact that you, you know, it's not the fact that my dad took me to a football game when I was a kid. It was the fact that when I was a kid, I used to go to football games with my dad. I don't remember any specific one. I remember that I used to do it. It's the habit. And if, so I'll give you a perfect example of what not to do. My dad called a meeting, a family meeting. It was 1985. When did we have our next family meeting? 2006. And, wow. the, and the impetus for that was a cancer diagnosis. Wow. And so that's not the way to do it. Yeah. He had learned through some colleagues that, you know, you should have a family meeting and do stuff. But then it's sort of just, it was like fireworks. You shoot off one Roman candle, boom, it's there and it's gone. And then everyone forgets about it. And mm-hmm. they're kind of shaking their heads. What was that all about? I hope we don't have to do that again. Well, start small, have a meeting and then discuss a few things. Don't try to have one big meeting and, 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 and you know, spill your whole history and what you see and do that and, and assume, oh, God, 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 got that over with. Thank God. Yeah. No, that, that, it's having a series of meetings where people learn how to behave together. They learn that there is a time and a place. There's a forum. So as you think of questions, you know that, you know what, when we have that next meeting, I want to ask about this. So, so you don't worry about it because you know there's, there's going to be a time and a place to deal with certain things. Mm-hmm. So family meetings, family meeting, great, but make sure it's the first of a series and build from there. And don't expect the first one to be perfect, but try to build yeah. with each one. Completely agree. Um, one of our final questions um, that, that I want to ask is is around um, the the possibility of helping our children too much. Um, again, it's something you um, cover in the book. Um, so that I guess the question is, and I know the answer, but it, is it possible to help our children too much? Oh, absolutely. And and so yeah, you're. you're um, you're referring to one chapter of one of the overlaps I talk about called How Can't I Help You? Yes. And I really, the idea of overhelping um, for wealthy families, especially when you have your children that, that you love and you care for and you have enough money to, to give them anything and everything they want. Um, how does that sometimes turn out right so we've we've probably heard the term affluenza where these these spoiled kids have gone on and had a car accident and killed people and then their defense is well affluenza i didn't know how to say no to anything i was raised poorly because i was rich and i always had anything so i didn't know uh, that i could do anything wrong um yes we can help our children too much and and in fact you're making me think of the fact that uh, most of the problems that come up in, in family business are have nothing to do. They're not business problems. They're, they're mm-hmm. parenting problems. Yeah. And so, so parents need to set limits. It's, it's easy to say. It's harder to do. Uh, I've raised a couple of kids that I think they've turned out pretty good. Uh, I'm 
not the authority on anything, but but helping people too much. Uh, part of what I talk about in, in, in that chapter is that it's actually, you can't blame the kid, right? It's sometimes if, if mom and dad, mom and dad, whoever is giving too much help, whether it's financial or whatever, um, there's something in it that, that it's doing something for them. Mm-hmm. You can't just blame, if you're blaming the spoiled child, well, you need to look in the mirror as well because yeah. somebody spoiled that child. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how much in the UK you hear about this college admission scandal in the US about yes. all these celebrities who paid, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars to get their kids into good schools. And I mean, mm-hmm. that is just the perfect example of, oh, my God. And, and, and the poor kids in most of the cases had no idea their parents were doing this. So, mm-hmm. so now this kid got into Stanford and thinks that they're really smart, but it was only because, you know, their parents gave a half a million dollars to the rowing coach to, to recommend them for admission. It's, uh-huh. it's crazy. That- but yes, the problem with helping sometimes is, is – um, there's kind of like a one up one down situation where the person who's helping it makes, it makes them feel good to help that other person. Up. Mm-hmm. And, and that kind of help, uh, especially even for advisors. Sometimes I've tried to banish the word help from my vocabulary. Mm-hmm. I've tried to replace it as much as possible with, uh, I'd like to be a resource for people. Mm-hmm. I want to be a reason. I don't want to help you. But if you want me to be a resource for you, and I, and I even tell a story about how I worked with my Bowen coach and I was talking about um, something with my wife's family and I said, I want to help my wife with some stuff. And my coach said, what if you didn't help her? I said, what? She said, yeah, what if you were just a resource for her? And I got off that call. I went to see my wife and I said, by the way, remember I was telling you I wanted to help you with your family business stuff. Uh, I, I don't want to help you anymore. And she just looked at me like, what? Oh, okay. But then she was waiting for the punchline. And I said, but if you want me to be a resource for you anytime, just ask me and I'll be there for a resource for you. And she said, okay. But ever since then, I, I've realized that some people say, oh, just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do. But m- most people, if you're telling them what to do because it's supposed to help them, uh-huh. that's not often the best way to get people to do what you think they should do. Agreed, yeah. So help is, is a tricky one. Mm. And, 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 and I, I think people should pay more attention to how they are helping and whether or not they may be helping too much. Because yeah. if you are always, if you're tying your kids' shoes every day, and they're, now they're 10 years old and you're still tying their shoes, you're going to be tying them when they're 15 and 20. Yeah, yeah completely agree. Completely agree. Fantastic. Um, Steve, when, when can people um, get hold of the book? Very soon. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> the date. I, I've been kicking around with my guy who's doing the layout. Who's putting up, so it's going to be available only on Amazon. I'm publishing on Amazon. Uh-huh. Um, there is a link on my website and I'll make sure you have it for the show notes to pre-order a copy of the book now and then it'll be delivered when it comes out. Dates I've worked at like July 14th is probably the outside. It might be a week earlier. It might be a couple of weeks earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, It is available for pre-order now and once it is available, 
Um, generally, I will make sure through my social media that that people know about it. Um, I know you see, I see you, and we see each other on LinkedIn. We see each other on Twitter. Uh, I encourage people to hopefully follow me there. Um, and what's your Twitter handle if people want to follow you there? My Twitter handle is Family Legacy ADV, as an advisor, but but a Twitter handle is limited to fifteen characters, so it's Family Legacy ADV. And uh, LinkedIn, if you just Google Steve Legler or Steve Legler Family Business or Steve Legler Canada or Montreal, I'm sure you will find me. I do accept, I, I, I like to say I accept 99% of my LinkedIn invitations uh-huh. um, because sometimes you get some that are a bit sketchy, but most of them, if you have anything to do with this space, I will accept your invitation. Um, I, as you know, I create content constantly with a weekly blog. And so I love sharing that and getting comments from people uh, who, who like to read what I, what I write. Um, hopefully they'll like to read my book. It does sound like I'm speaking it. I, I don't try to write a book to make me sound extra smart by using extra long words. I'm writing it so people can understand my thoughts. Um, the book is almost ready. It's been, if you've ever written a book, you know, it, 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 you finish writing it. And from the time you finish writing it till the time you actually get the finished thing is, is more months than you expect. Yeah. But my goal is also, so my first book, it needed to be out before my 50th birthday. And that was, came out three weeks before. And I'm hopefully be more than three weeks before my birthday is in early August. So by, by early July, um, it'll be out there. Right. Well, we look forward to it and congratulations on the book. It is um, very good. Um, I recommend people do um, pre-order it and, and get it when it comes out. It, it is excellent. Um, uh, thank you again for your uh, time, Steve. Um, I do feel your pain in terms of um, the timeframes after a book's written. I finished writing um, my first book two years ago and it's still sat on the computer oh, waiting, <laughs> waiting to press print. <laughs> Well, uh, good luck with that. So then that, you're making me feel good that mine is, is measured yeah. in months and not years. I think what I'm going to do as well is set a deadline for my 55th birthday for when that's going to be published. <laughs> I'm 38 now. you a lot now, more so. runway to get there before, <laughs> before I do. Um, but no, we will, we will link all of the... Um, social network um, stuff up in the, in the show notes um, and um, as I say we recommend people go and check out the episode on Bowen Systems um, in uh, episode can, 13 Can I tell you a quick story about your podcast? Yeah, please I met someone at FFI in London last year who knew who I was because of my the episode that I recorded with you. She didn't know anything about my book. She didn't write my book. She just knew me from you. And she's American. And now she I'm working with her. She's one of my coaching clients. And so, Fantastic. hey, small world. You never know where the connections are coming from. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and that, that was the reason for putting the podcast out there is so that, that um, people can find the resources that are going to help them. So I'm really pleased to hear that. That's fantastic. And I look forward to seeing you in a few weeks in the U.S. Yeah, so we're speaking at the same conference, aren't we? The Purposeful Planning Institute. And as I was rereading my my book yesterday, I realized that I had put, like, that I finished my book with uh, people should join the Purposeful Planning Institute. I've been a huge proponent of this group. 
And now uh, Russell will be at their annual rendezvous in, in July. And I look forward to seeing him there and introducing him to the people that I've met over the last five years that I've been going to that conference. I'm really looking forward to it too and uh, a chance to see you in the flesh again. Um, uh, as you say, it, the first time we met was um, over the, the internet, as you like, if you like, um, and people have warned me about meeting people on the internet, but uh, it's, it's uh, very good to be able to meet you in person in London and I look forward to seeing you in Denver uh, in July and um, looking forward to getting the, my hands on a, a copy of the book. Awesome. I look forward to that too. And, and uh, we'll see you soon. Thanks again for, for having me. I really, I don't know if you could tell by the tone of my voice, but I really enjoy doing this. Yeah, I enjoyed it as, as well. So um, thanks, Stephen. And uh, see you soon. Thanks, Russ. I hope you found this episode useful. If you have, then why not share it with your family and see what they think? I work with families just like yours to help them to better understand the complexities that can come with being a family in business. So whether you're just starting out or heading into the umpteenth generation, if you feel that I could help, check out fanbizpodcast.com forward slash work with Russ and get in touch. Until next time, take care.